So we are tonight in Exodus chapter 6. And the last time we were together, we ended on sort of a bummer note. Israel was very disappointed in God. Moses was more disappointed than God, I think, than everybody was. They were all surprised that God's word had no effect on Pharaoh. A matter of fact, it seemed to have an opposite effect. It really upset Pharaoh. And he said, you're going to have to keep producing the amount of bricks that you have been doing, but without straw, which was virtually impossible. But they were having to scrounge. And if they didn't meet their quota, they were beaten. And we ended chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Do you remember what that sounded like? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? <laughs> remember Moses, 40 years earlier, he, he was going to deliver the children of Israel and it blew up in his face. And it demoralized him. It took the, the wind out of the sails. And he, for 40 years, hid out in Saudi Arabia as a nobody, doing a nobody job, and, and thought that's the way he's going to end his life. And now 40 years after that, he's coming back at 80, and he's just like, long as this thing doesn't blow up in my face, again, I'll do it. First steps Moses makes, it blows up in his face again. And he says there in verse 23 of chapter 5, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to the people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. To this point, obeying your voice has made things worse. The people literally said to Moses and Aaron, things were better before you came. Things were better before you said God loved us and wanted to deliver us. A matter of fact, ever since we've heard the word of the Lord, life has been much, much harder. Remember, it was already hard. God had heard their, their cries and heard their groanings. And, and because of the hardship upon them, he sent Moses to begin with. And of course, Moses doesn't want to add insult to injury, but that's exactly what happened. Well, tonight the sermon is discouraged. Let God encourage you. And this is where we come to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses... Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let you go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out from this land. Now just sit back and see what I will do. You're discouraged. You're, you're hopeless at this point after listening to the power of Pharaoh and observing the power of Pharaoh's hand against you. But you're going to find out that he's going to not only let you go, he is going to drive you out. <laughs> um, I like that. I'm not going to just, a strong hand, he'll let you go, but a strong hand, he will drive you out. He will passionately, zealously kick you out of the land. So now he's saying, you'll, I'll never let them go. And God is saying, very short time, he will be doing the opposite of that. He won't just say, you can leave if you want. He is going to be insisting, commanding that you leave. But remember, God already told these guys this. 
back, way back in Exodus 3. Do you remember this? God said, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. But then he said, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Do you see the three knots and no's there, the three negatives? He will not let you go. No, he will not even by a mighty hand. So even after a, n- a number of powerful things happen, it won't be enough. There's going to be, have to be a whole line of powerful things. And then in Exodus 3.20, so I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. We are going to learn here tonight. Everything's a test, right? And in all of the tests, it's God wanting to reveal himself to us. Right? I mean, do, do we get that? L- let's say you went on a nature walk. And it's up a hill and down a hill and it's five mile nature walk. And you get out there and you got your bottle and you're walking, you're walking, you're walking. And you get your five miles in and you sit down and waiting for the rest of the group. And they said, Man, did you see that, that area where you can observe all the various kind of butterflies? Butterflies? I didn't see any butterflies. And then did you see that, that remember they told us before the walk to, to observe where the raccoons are in those hills. And, and they were out and they were playing. It was such, I didn't see any wildlife. And then well, we just sat there at the bottom of that waterfall for a while. And oh, it felt so refreshing. Did you enjoy the waterfall? I didn't see a waterfall. You, you see what I'm saying? It's not about God getting them out of Egypt alone. It's about them getting to know the Lord. And, interesting enough, it's the Lord's desire that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know the Lord. I'm going to blow your mind. You can look at this. At the very end of Isaiah 19, God doesn't say, I have one child, Israel. He says, I have three kids. And guess who they are? Yes, Israel, you got that one, right? But Assyria, remember Assyria, the big giant, wicked kingdom where Jonah didn't want to go tell him to repent. God was going to destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, Israel is also one of them. And guess who his third child is? Egypt. And God is going to have a place to worship him in Jerusalem. But guess where the other place God's going to make for you to worship Jesus on earth? Egypt. Isn't that crazy? Now, we, we don't get that until the, into the millennial reign. But yet we, we see here that God is doing so much. And he's, he's bringing them to say, you've got to get it all. You've got to soak it all up. And of course, the eyes of faith will see it and receive it and enjoy it and learn of God and grow in God. Those who have no faith, it will just be a bummer ride. God's disappointing. The world's disappointing. Everything is hard. Everything is miserable. And I just want to go back to Egypt and, you know, die as a slave. I, it's just too complicated. Yep, God doesn't give you a choice. But to see that mighty hand and to see God basically one by one take down the false gods of Egypt 
and show himself greater than all their gods because he alone is God. Well, verse 2, I don't know if we're going to make it much farther than verse 2 tonight, but verse 2. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Notice the capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord and sometimes as a capital L, but then a lowercase, O-R-D. When it's the lowercase, that's the word Adonai. But when it's the four consonants together like this, or the four capital L-O-R-D, all capital, excuse me, it's referring to what we call the tetragrammaton, and we transliterate it as Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, depending on how you transliterate one of the Hebrew letters. And it has no enunciation. The children of Israel don't say that name. But today, they will communicate it by saying Yah or Yahweh. Whether that's the right way to say it or not, I don't know. Um, there, there were through some liberal German scholarships for a while where they uh, took the YH, they put the vows of Adonai or put the vows of Elohim in between it, thinking it's some kind of code. And the Y in German has a J enunciation. And so it came out as Jehovah. But I'm positive that is not it. Because one, God doesn't speak German. He speaks Hebrew and English. Um, Everybody knows that. (laughs) But anyway, he says here, I am Yah, Yahweh. Or I like to say Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, it's him. He is the one, the name above all names. Right? Unto Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And he's saying here, <coughs> in, in essence, he's saying to Moses, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. <coughs> so Moses is looking at Pharaoh going, he's huge. He speaks and everybody's in bondage and, and he's, all, he's the all-powerful one and, and everybody is suffering because of him. And how will you, God, this little tiny ant over here, how will you take down big giant Pharaoh? That's the way he saw it in the pain, in the agony of the moment. And often we can see life like that. We can see that God is a small little peon and, and my problems are gigantic. Or Satan or the government or whoever it might be that you feel is overwhelming you in the moment. And he is in essence teaching Moses right up front that you need to know who I am. And you need to realize that I am your Lord and all that that means. And this is what is going to be unraveled the rest of the Bible, guys. He's going to tell us in a moment that up to this point in history, everybody's only known God as El Shaddai, the God of hosts. But he said, not anymore. From this point forward, starting with you, Moses, you're going to know me as Yahweh. You're going to know me as the Tetragrammaton. You're going to know me and that I am not just this warrior or this great king or this big wrestler or the, you know, the God upstairs, but I am 
a God who personally wants to know you and you know me and, and for you to, to realize that because I love you, I'm definitely going to deliver you because I am your shepherd. I am, we're going to learn it. It's all going to keep getting enrolled, isn't it? We're going to learn he's our shepherd. Well, that's wonderful. And then we're going to finally get into the new day. He's our husband. What? See, we've got God as our father. God as our shepherd. God as our friend. God as our kinsman, redeemer. We'll learn in Ruth, uh, the, the Goel. I mean, it goes on and on. Every personal, every personal intimate type relationship you can have on this earth that the Lord is saying from this point forward, you're getting your eyes on just not God and you picture a cloud or some people picture a big eyeball in the cloud or whatever it is you picture. No, he is intimately involved in our life, and that's how you can know he is going to deliver you. Boy, as we go through this New Testament, we learn so much about our Lord, don't we? In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Moses is learning right now. Since God is our Lord, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. Is Moses walking by faith or sight right now? I, I don't think he even has the concept of walking by faith. I think he only knows about walking by sight. Hebrews 12, verse 2 and 3, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. There's an intimate relationship, not our shepherd, not our father, not our husband, but he is the finisher. He's the finisher. If, if you believe in him, you're going to end believing in him because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at the price he paid for us. For consider him. Now, Paul says in, in Hebrews 12, consider him, think about him, meditate on him just a minute. Who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That he's saying here, imagine Jesus, all 33 years, a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. We looked on him as one who was smitten by God and afflicted. But yet, by his stripes were healed. So he's saying, look at Jesus. He's the author and the finisher. He started as a babe in the manger, and he ended up dying painfully and on the cross. But yet now he's at the right hand of the Father with joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and joy about you now. He's going to complete that work in you, even though you may have to go and endure through a time of hostility from sinners. It's okay. Don't become weary. John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. Now you read that, you're going, okay, I have peace because you overcome the world? Yeah, that's great about you, Jesus, but what about me? You see, if you understand I am the Lord, you understand that whatever Jesus did, it's accounted to you. And whatever Jesus did, you will also do in the like manner. And if Jesus died and rose again, 
then you, what? Will raise again in a like manner. So yes, Jesus is saying, surely you understand that whatever happens to me is applied to you. And so I've overcome the world. You also will overcome the world. That's the greatest news because he goes on to say in 1 John 4, 17 to double down on this thought, because as he what? Is right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, so are we in this world. That's how secure we are. That this is how done the work is completed. Jesus, you know, when you sit down, that means the work's over. Jesus sat down because it was finished. And we are now setting down also in the finished work of God as He is right now. He, we, in his mind, he already sees us seated together with him in heavenly places. He already sees us have overcome the world. He sees us as already setting down with him at the right hand of the Father. Look at verse John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? We're, we're going to overcome them because Jesus is not a little bit stronger than Satan. Jesus is all-powerful, and Satan is a worm. In John 14, verse 19 to 20, a little while longer, and you will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You will live also, right? And that of that day you know, and I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So a little bit longer and nobody else is going to be able to see me, but you're going to see me. Remember in 1 John 1, little children, these things I write to you, those who have seen and heard and touched, this, this word of life. He's actually, Jesus is actually nearer to me now that he's gone, John says, than when he was with us in the flesh. So if you're thinking that, oh, I wish I was one of the 12 apostles physically with Jesus, and first John says, there's no way. What, what Jesus did with us was nothing to compare to what he's doing now through his spirit. It's a far greater intimacy that we have with him now in the spirit. And of course, John 17, you know this. I pray them that I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Do you, do you understand that? I mean, Moses is going, I just had my first conversation and it didn't go well. And I, I think that there's a chance we may lose this thing. And he comes back to Moses to say, okay, just four little words to you. I am the Lord. What all does that mean? Moses has not a clue. We're going to get to chapter 33 and, and the Lord's going to say to Moses, Okay, I'm going to send an angel and he's going to take you into the promised land and you're going to have victory in the promised land. And just as I said, the children of Israel are going to have all the promised land. And what did Moses say to that? No way. I reject that. I'm not going with any angel. You said you were going to take us into the land. And if you don't go into the land, I'm not going anywhere. Do you remember this? And God said, like I said, I'll send the angel and you'll have tremendous victory. And, and you guys are going to love the promised land. 
And what did Moses say? I'm staying right here in the desert. I'm going to stay with you. (laughs) Wherever you are, that's where I want to be. He got it by chapter 33, didn't he? He was understanding it. No matter where we're at in our bondage on this earth, Jesus is our Lord. He's at the right hand of the Father. So are you. It's just a matter of when, not if. As he is, so are we in this world. That's how much rest you can be setting with the Lord, knowing that he has overcome the world. So it's guaranteed that we will overcome the world if Jesus has overcome the world. And now he says, Father, if they're mine, then they're yours. Now they were yours and you gave them to me and now they're mine. And now they're mine and I give them to you and they're yours. <laughs> Notice there in, in John 17, 10. And all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I've come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name, those to whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. As Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, that we are in them and they in us, mind-boggling. John 17, verse 14 and 15, as I've given them to your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Big amen on that. Woo, thank you, Jesus, for praying for that. Now, verse 20 of John 17, I do not pray that the, for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Why Jesus was on earth at 33 years old, he prayed for all believers who ever would exist on earth. Isn't that great? Jesus personally prayed for you before he died on the cross for you. But then he goes on to say that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they all may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23 here of John 17. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as I, as you have loved me, that the world would know that we are as loved by the Father as much as Jesus was loved by the Father. Just think of that a minute. Now Moses is coming to the Lord going, man, this is going to be a tough one, Lord. This is a close call. You know, so far, Pharaoh one, God zero. Boy, I hope you can turn this one around, Lord. I don't know. I mean, from what I know about you so far, when I was 40, you really didn't come through. And now I'm 80, and you really haven't come through. I really liked being a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. I did not want to come here. I did not want to speak. I did not want to be in this difficult tribulation, this difficult place between light and darkness, between 
evil and good, between Satan and God, between the Egyptians who are all powerful and these slaves who have nothing. And to try to get these slaves out of the claws of the Egyptians and get them all the way over to the promised land. I'm 80 years old. I just, I, I retired. I, I don't want to go back to work. There's just no hope here. I don't, what's going to happen? And God said to Moses these four words, I am the Lord. In essence, get your eyes on me and begin to unpack that. What does it mean that I am the Lord? What does that mean? He had told us earlier that I am has sent you. Or that also could be I will has sent you. So now as, as we move on, we, we begin to see here in verses 3 through 5, as verse 2 all the way through verse 5, God speaking to Moses to encourage him. And then in verse 6, he's going to start speaking to the children of Israel. But here's what else God speaks to Moses in verse 3 through 5. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, Lord, Tetragrammaton, I was not known to them. Wow. So Moses, right this point in history, you know more about me than anybody in all of history has known about me. Wow. And Moses is going, I don't know anything. <laughs> Yep, but hang on. This is going to be quick. You're going to learn a lot. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of the pilgrimage in which they are strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, which the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So he pretty much says what he had said earlier, but he's letting them know now that they're going to be coming out of bondage, and they're, I'm going to be revealed to them but they're going to know me not like the forefathers knew me. They're going to know me in a personal way, a relational way. They're, they're going to, if, if you would, they're, they're going to be able to put skin on the bones. They're going to see me for who I am. I am indeed the Lord. Remember that God told Abraham, back in Genesis 15, he said, yes, you're going to have children as many as stars in the heavens. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It just seemed so flimsy, <laughs> the whole thing. But then right after that, they, God says, let's do a sacrifice. In those days, you cut an animal in half and we both walk through it. I'll do my part, you do your part, and we have a, we have a deal. But remember, Abraham fell asleep into a deep sleep, and he dreamed about this. He dreamed about his kids were as the stars of the heavens, but they were all slaves for 400 years in a foreign land. And he wakes up, and he realizes God has already come and gone. And God, in essence, saying, I will keep my part, and I will keep your part. <laughs> Our covenant's based upon me and my faithfulness, my power. So here we, we are going to see this happening. Now he's going to explain it. In verses 6 through 8, he goes, this is what you're going to go tell the children of Israel. Say in verse 6 to the children of Israel, he opens up with, I am the Lord, 
with that saying he just told Moses. And look all the way down at the end of verse 8. He's going to end this speech by saying, I am the Lord. So this thing, when he says, Moses, I am the Lord, that says it all. (laughs) There is nothing more to say. If you can unpack that, of course, they didn't. They didn't understand anything. Well, let let me begin this lesson. Here's one plus one. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. So so notice this beginning of this. This is not a list of you must. This is a list of I will. See, all religions of the world are based on those two. One looking at you and say, you must. And Christianity looking at you saying, look at me. I will. I will be your righteousness. I will pay for your sins. I will raise again, conquering your sin and your death. Where your sin abounds, my grace will abound more. You see, it's all about him. So this is the same concept of I am, I will, the same thing. I am, who will will you say sent me? I am. Okay, that's it. I'm going to go say I am, yes. Well, now you can say one more thing to him. I am Yah, Yahweh. What does that mean? It's about me and my power and my love and you as my children. It's about who I am and what I'm going to do. I will bring you, number one, out of the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you from the outstretched arm and great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. I will bring you into a land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. And then he ends, I am the Lord. So you know what the I am the Lord means now? (laughs) Well, here's seven things. Look at me. I am your savior. Number one, I will get you out from the burden of the oppressor. I am your salvation. I will rescue you from your bondage, liberation. I will redeem you in a powerful way. That word redeem, by the way, is a word that we know well if you studied Ruth. It's the same root as Goel, kinsman, redeemer. And this is a very personal thing where a relative buys another relative out of their slavery. And here he's saying, I'm the one taking you out of slavery by my powerful hand. And then number four, I will take you as my people. God's sovereignly speaking here of his own choosing, his own free will. In Romans 9, we looked at Romans 9 last week, but he said, I not only this, but when Rebekah, who also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Do you understand? I, I showed up to Abraham, and I said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And now I'm showing up to these 
slaves in Egypt. And I'm saying, I am calling you unto myself. And I am not going to allow you to serve anybody but me. In Romans 9, 16, so then it's not of him who wills or him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. John 15, 16, you did not choose me. This is the picking of his 12 apostles, but he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, may me give you. John 6, 44, no one comes to me lest the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What a parallel here. That you're coming out of Egypt as you look at me and see me as the one calling you. You see me as your redeemer. As you get your eyes and follow me out of Egypt. In John 6, 37 to 40, probably some of the best verses in all the Bible. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And no one who comes to me will I by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last days. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him has everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Finally, in 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us? Who's called us with this holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I will, I will, I will. For the fifth one, I will be your God. I love that. No matter what you are, no matter how much you fail, I mean, isn't it amazing? The father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus says, I always do the things that please the father. But yet then Jesus turns around and says, the father looks at you just as he looked at me when I was in flesh. But I stumble around and I fall and I sin. But yet what have we been given in Christ? his righteousness. So every time the father looks at us, it's through the prism of the work of his son. And when the father looks at us through the son, he sees us perfect in Jesus's righteousness. And you say, but, but, then, but then after that, I, I sin. Yeah, but Jesus, we learn in Ephesians 5, is continually washing and cleansing us with the water of the word that we're without, with spot or without wrinkle, always before him. So we have this amazing standing. And, and again, the children of Israel are in bondage. They don't know God. They, they, they're just completely ignorant. It, it would be like a kindergartner trying to under, you know, it's like some kindergartner go to listen to Einstein's lecture, you know? fact is, is it's just tremendous. And we're, here we are in the New Testament. We have more revelation of God than anyone at any time on planet Earth. Much is given, much is required. But what do we, we realize? He's our God. What's that mean? It's his nature that saved us. It's his love that saved us. It's his 
only begotten Son who saves us. It's His life, it's His death, it's His resurrection that saves us. It's His mercies that are new every morning that keeps us. It's His grace that abounds more than our sin that keeps us and sustains us. So when we're faithless, He remains faithful. He can't deny Himself because He is the Lord. He is our salvation. He's my Father. He's my friend. He's my shepherd. He's my Goel. He's my husband who loves me. He's my Lord. So even when I'm faithless, of course he's going to remain faithful because he's the Lord. And the Lord's always faithful, even when we're not faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13.5 says, Matthew 28, 20, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course he's with us always. He's the Lord. Of course he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's the Lord. Of course he keeps us standing perfect in righteousness, cleansing us, washing us, purifying us, that we're without spot and without wrinkle, because he's the Lord. And he says, I will bring you into the land of promise. Now that's interesting, because that fulfillment happens in the true Joshua, or Jesus. Jesus is the Greek name Joshua. Joshua, we say in English, Yahshua in Hebrew. Joshua leads them into the promised land, but they never conquer all the promised land, but in the millennial reign of Christ. But Hebrews 4 tells us that these people that Moses is talking to right now did not enter into the promised land because they didn't have faith. The seventh thing he says is, I will give you a heritage forever. I love that. Right this moment, you have it. If you will, by faith, receive it. In Titus 3, 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow, Jesus' resurrection, all this is possible. Verse 4, 1 Peter 1, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. And then Colossians 1, verse 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has, past tense, qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Wow. Is our heritage <laughs> guaranteed? That's why he says, I'm the Lord and you are already seated together in heavenly places with me. But I've got this big battle. I'm only 40. I've got another 100 years to live. <laughs> There's a big battle out there. And man, I don't know. I, I know people and they slipped and fell and they walked away from God and, and people that got hooked on drugs. And what, what, what's going to happen? You know what? I just know that you need to get your eyes on him. He is faithful. He is the God of I will, I will, I will. I am the Lord. He is our salvation from A to Z. 
Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing, that he who began the good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, right? Philippians, or 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. In Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever. Through the one offering and, and, and what about my part? It's through him, period. Through the one offering he has perfected forever. Those who are now being sanctified. Well, we're going to pick up here next week in verse 9, but let me read it. Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. I don't know about you, but it just rips my heart apart. When I hear people that hear about the goodness of God, but they're just so entrenched in their own darkness and their own difficulties and their own hardships that they can't get their eyes on the Lord. I know Christians like that who just got transfixed looking at themselves in the mirror, looking at the problems of the world, and they got their eyes off of Jesus. And all they need to do is just turn to the author and the finisher, just get their eyes on Jesus. You know, I, I think I, I would have thought verse 9 would have said, and after Moses spoke to the children of Israel, they began to dance and sing and rejoice and saying, God is our God. He is the Lord, Yahweh. <laughs> but it did not, the, the, the promises, the seven I wills of God, the I am, the great I am, Yahweh, I am, did not help them at all. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith. So tonight, we want to come to that place to, to not repeat <laughs> what the children of Israel did and to say, Lord, I receive all that you have said about yourself. I receive it. I believe it. Mm.